Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Greetings to our friends at uh, Calvary Chapel, Albuquerque. And here we are at Biblical Sodom. And uh, we're standing on the western edge of the city. Looking back this way, you can see the upper city in the distance, about a kilometer from here. Talahamam spreads over a 100-acre site that dates from the Chalcolithic period through the Middle Bronze Age, with another occupation during Iron Age II about 700 years later. The walled city during the Middle Bronze Age was massive, encompassing 80 acres. It is 600 meters by 800 meters. The foundation of the wall is 4 meters thick and would have been as much as 15 meters high with an outer sloping rampart 100 feet thick, constructed of tens of millions of mud bricks. The size of the walled enclosure means that it was one of the most influential cities in the entire region during the Bronze Age. The city was destroyed during the Middle Bronze Age and was not reoccupied until well into the Iron Age. The site consists of an upper city, a lower city, the megalithic field, and a later Roman period bathhouse. The upper area has a large Iron Age gate complex. The height of the Iron Age walls would have been almost 9 meters and encloses 15 acres of land. The Iron Age city foundations cut into the earlier Bronze Age mud brick ramparts. Excavation has revealed the mud brick walls of the Bronze Age palace located on the pinnacle of the upper tell, overlooking the entire Jordan Valley. From this point, many other tells that were vassal sites can be seen. Every single rock was carried up by human hands for construction of the city. The lower areas revealing many different types of structures from many different time periods. Excavation of part of the lower tell is uncovering a massive early Bronze Age city wall, six meters thick. Several courses of the original mud brick are still attached to the top of the stone foundation. This wall would have been almost 15 meters high and encompassed an area of 80 acres. Several small gates have been discovered in the wall. On the inside of the massive wall, the foundations and partial mud brick walls of dwellings have been preserved through the millennia. Hundreds of thousands of pottery sherds have been discovered as the team excavates through the rubble of the destroyed civilization. Building foundations are discovered to have been built right on top of previously existing walls, demonstrating that the Bronze Age city was continuously occupied for more than 2,000 years. In the middle of the lower area, a large Bronze Age temple complex has been discovered. Unfortunately, much of the archaeological remains have been plowed up by local farmers who use the area for growing bananas. Foundations for walls, supporting pillars and altars are all that remain of the many structures in this area. Near the temple complex is a series of buildings that are probably an Iron Age cultic center. It's built over Bronze Age administrative structures. Just below a warm spring that still gives water, 
is a massive Roman and Byzantine reservoir with an associated Roman bath. The structure is almost completely buried and measures 40 meters by 40 meters. This water reservoir could have been part of the city of Livius, the capital of the province of Perea during the time of Tiberius in the first century CE. Water flowed into the city and surrounding agricultural fields by a system of reservoirs, aqueducts, and naturally flowing springs from surrounding hills. Up in the hills to the east of the Tell, massive stone blocks and strange weathered sandstone create an eerie landscape that was once a sacred place to honor the dead. The massive stone structures are called dolmens, erected during the Bronze Age. No one is certain what their exact function was, but excavation has revealed that they were not tombs, but monuments for memorializing the dead. Undisturbed dolmens have only contained small amounts of pottery and other remains. Over 500 dolmens have been cataloged in the hills surrounding Tal el Hamam. There were probably over 1,500 original monuments in the area. The pottery excavated is painstakingly cataloged and analyzed. Each period of history is typified by certain pottery types. This is how the age of civilization is determined, by the pottery found in the context during excavation. Thousands of pottery sherds are discovered during an excavation each season, and each one has to be read, cataloged, and photographed. Tal el-Hammam, along with many nearby sites, has revealed a previously unknown city-state civilization that was obviously a great regional power during the Bronze Age. I better answer this. Hi, Gary. That was close. Well, I guess that really keeps you on the ball, doesn't it? Well, listen, um, I want to introduce you to somebody that I consider the real Indiana Jones. He's the archaeologist par excellence. He's a good friend of mine. He's a professor at Trinity Southwest University. In fact, he's in charge of it. He's the lead archaeologist over in Jordan in the dig of Sodom. And he is speaking here tonight. So please give a warm welcome to Dr. Stephen Collins, the real Indiana Jones. I am going to kill him. Well, it's really good to be here tonight. I know that I've, we've spoken on this subject time and time again over the last uh, seven years of our excavations in the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan, just about 14, uh, about 8 miles northeast of the Dead Sea. And we'll get a chance to look at that in just a minute, uh, briefly, so you'll know where we are. But um, what I want to share with you tonight is n- really new stuff. What we're going to see tonight hasn't s- seen the light of day 
since Sodom was destroyed almost 4,000 years ago and wasn't uncovered until the end of February. So very, very recently, this is all new stuff. Most everything we're going to see tonight is new, it's unpublished, and in many ways it is unprecedented. So we're, we're going to have a good time tonight. I want to start tonight by taking a little bit different track than, than I have normally. Let's start with First Peter, if you've got your Bible tonight. If you want to look at that, we're going to, we're going to go through a couple of Scripture passages together. In 1 Peter 3.15, the Apostle gives us an indicator as to how we are to handle unbelievers. He says, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks, asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. As a Christian... Hopefully you've got the walk and not just the talk. And when people see it, they ask questions as to why are you like that? And hope that's a good thing. (laughs) When people ask us about the hope that we hold within, within ourselves, we are commanded here by Peter to be ready to give Answers offer evidence. Let's let's look at this passage. The, the word in this particular translation is to give the reason, the reason for the hope that's within you. Now that word reason is the Greek word apologia, and what it means is to offer factual evidence. It's actually a Greco-Roman legal term. It refers to evidence offered in a court of law in favor of a claim. So what Peter is asking us to do is, when someone asks you about the hope that's within you, always be ready, be at the instant, to offer evidence, you could even say offer proof, that your faith is believable. That it isn't simply founded on faith, but that it's founded on a bedrock of fact. Now, let's look at 2 Peter. 2 Peter 1.16 When someone wants to know why we believe what we believe, what kinds of things are we supposed to tell them? Here it is. We did not follow cleverly devised stories, cleverly invented tales, when we told you about Jesus Christ. I'm cutting out a few words here because I want to get the essence of it. We didn't follow myths or fables when we talked to you about Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses. Very important word. We were eyewitnesses. We didn't make this stuff up. This is what really happened. 
Now, if you read the introductions to most of the Gospels, particularly Luke and the book of Acts, which he also wrote, it states very specifically that Luke did an investigation, did some pretty good snooping around with the the eyewitnesses of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and they specifically... Luke specifically wrote what the facts were. And he tells Theophilus, his buddy, I'm writing all of these things so that you might know the exact truth about what has occurred, about what you've heard. Now, I want to play off of this tonight. We do not follow cleverly invented stories when we talk about the Bible when we talk about our faith, when we talk about the stories of Scripture, we are not talking about cleverly invented myths that somebody made up in order to prove some kind of spiritual or religious point. The Bible is... Some people will disagree with me on this, but I guess you have a right to be wrong. It's America. The Bible is first and foremost a book of history. You say, oh no, it's a a theological book. It's a book about spiritual truth. Well, it does have a pretty good bunch of that in it. That's for sure. But the Bible, why I say the Bible is first and foremost a book of history is simply that if the history in the Bible isn't true to begin with, then how in the world could you possibly trust the spiritual perspective? If you can't trust the Bible in what you can see and can touch and can measure, How do you think we might be able to trust it in what we cannot see? The great thing about the Bible to me is that God has never asked us to believe most of what's in that book by faith. It is presented not as the resurrection of Jesus. Let's go just go to big numero uno miracle, right? The big one. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not presented... As a matter of faith. Now, we're called upon to have faith in Him. But the event is presented as a simple, straightforward, perfectly physical matter of fact. Matter of history. Now, we're going to talk about some archaeology tonight. What else would we talk about? We don't follow cleverly devised tales when we talk about things in the Old Testament. When it comes to talking about Sodom and Gomorrah, somebody didn't make that up just to tell some kind of moralistic tale. This is real history. And we're going to demonstrate that tonight, hopefully uh, in a powerful way. I want to start by this, though. Because the Bible is a historical document, it gives us factual information about real people, real places, real things, real events. In the light of that, any attempt to support biblical faith 
with unfounded claims, scams, hoaxes, wild speculations, is an insult to biblical truth because it is grounded in historical fact. Now, why do I even bring that up? Because I speak across America a lot. And invariably, after some of these presentations that I do, I have quite a few people come up to me and say, Oh, did you see this on the Internet? Have you, heard, have you seen this video? Have you heard about this discovery? And it really hurts me to have to say, Well, in fact... That's a hoax. There's so much out there, especially in the world of the Internet. There's so much out there. Folks, just because it shows up on the Internet does not mean it's true. Let me give you just a real quickie little catalog, just just briefly. Recent discoveries supposedly supporting the Bible. Here they are. Hope I'm not going to pounce on your toes, but bless your heart. Yeah, just go ahead and take your shoes off, because here it comes. Mount Sinai in Arabia. Completely unfounded. Egyptian chariot wheels found in the dead in the Red Sea. It's a hoax. Ark of the Covenant found in a cave underneath Gordon's Calvary. Heard that one? It's a scam. A blood, this this has just come up in the last couple of weeks. A blood channel from the Temple Mount to the Kidron Valley, you know where the blood of the sacrifices of the temple ran out. It's just a wild speculation. It has absolutely no basis in fact. By the way, the reason I know about this one is because my good friend Lane Rittmeyer and I were asked to investigate it. Wood from Noah's Ark found on Mount Ararat. By the way, uh, this particular most, the most recent version of, of this was perpetrated by local Turkish uh, I don't know whether you'd call what, what you call them, tri- tribal members in the area who scammed a bunch of uh, archaeologists from Korea and China. And actually, they, they went through a huge expense to come look at this thing up in Mount Era. These people actually hauled this wood from the Black Sea that looked really old, and they, they built this ark-looking thing up there, let it go through a full season of snow, and then scammed all these people, and it's been all over the Internet. It's a complete hoax. Giants found in excavations around the world. That's been really making the, making the rounds lately. It's a complete, utter, absolute hoax. Sodom and sulfur balls found near the Dead Sea below Masada. That one gets a lot of play. It's a complete scam. Now, I just say watch out for these things. Because we don't need untruth 
We don't need fabrications to support the historical authenticity of the Bible. We just don't need it. The Bible can stand up quite well on its own, thank you, with real scientific investigation. There are a lot of legitimate, factual, and scientific avenues that demonstrate the historical accuracy of Scripture. Of course, we're going to talk about Sodom tonight. I'm going to bring you into the excavation. But what I want to show you tonight is a point-by-point blow of the, of the Scriptures regarding Sodom in the book of Genesis and specific archaeological discoveries within the last seven years, some of them within the last couple of months, that verify exactly what Scripture says. What we're going to see is that these archaeological facts can prove almost everything said about Sodom in the book of Genesis. And one of the reasons why this is so important is simply because Sodom, well, the book of Genesis, number one, in the the critical academic world, is the most doubted book in the Bible. If you're going to pick on a book that's full of myths and legends, that's the one you pick on, mostly. In the book of Genesis, most scholars believe that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Joshua are all fictitious. That's what most scholars believe. So the book of Genesis really gets the, the, a bum rap here most of the time in the, in the scholarly world. And the story of Sodom and Gomorrah is worse still. It's in the most doubted book, in the most doubted part of the Bible uh, Bible stories, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that particular story is the most doubted story in the patriarchal narratives. So if archaeology could demonstrate for us that not only did Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain exist, but they were in exactly the right place, according to the Bible. They were in exactly the right time, according to the Bible. They have all the earmarks of all the right stuff, according to the Bible. And they were destroyed in a manner exactly as the Bible says they were destroyed. If all of that could somehow line up, I think that would be pretty powerful. If we can prove the most doubted part of the Bible is true, archaeologically, what does that say about the rest of it? So what we're doing here tonight is picking on the worst possible, sort of the worst case scenario for archaeology. Can we really prove that this thing exists and that it The events happened as the Bible says they happened. The answer to that question is yes. Now, let's just quickly look at the geography of Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm not going to go over this tonight. We've gone over uh, over this before many times. Study the book of Genesis, chapter 13, verses 1 through 12. That will give you all the nuts and bolts of where Sodom is located. But just in case you forgot... um, by the way, there, there are scholars in the past who forgot. 
to take the Bible seriously as a geographical, as a geographical document. But here's what I say about that. If in the past archaeologists and Bible scholars had taken the, had taken the Sodom tales seriously, which they didn't, they would have discovered the civilization in the land of the Kikar, or the plain, a long time ago. But they didn't take the Bible seriously, and no, they didn't locate the city. But we did, and we did. We took the Bible seriously, and we found it. Now, here's where it's located. This is the north end of the Dead Sea. This is the Kikar, Hakikar, the disk. This is what the Bible says as the land where Sodom and Gomorrah is located. It is called the plain of the Jordan. That phrase is the Kikar, the circle, the disk of the Jordan. It is that alluvial plain north of the Dead Sea. Now, this is where it is. The Bible says that when Lot lifted up his eyes from Bethel and I, from there, he looked over and he saw that the plain of the Jordan was well watered. The Kikar of the Jordan was a great agricultural area. And he looked towards Sodom and he traveled eastward from Bethel and I and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. So there it is exactly where the Bible says it should be located. Some people have located it in the Dead Sea region, say toward the southern half or even the, even the south end of the Dead Sea, but there's a severe problem with that. There's zero evidence for that. The Bible says it's not there, it's north of the Dead Sea. And there are no cities and towns dating to the time of Abraham and Lot around the Dead Sea in the Dead Sea Valley proper. So uh, this southern idea of Sodom strikes out uh, in almost every category. Now, that's the right place. The right place is northeast of the Dead Sea. The right time, let's just look at that briefly, the right time is the Middle Bronze Age. Abraham and Lot belong to that period of time we call the Middle Bronze Age that goes from 2000 B.C. down to about 1600 B.C. That's the time frame of the Middle Bronze Age, and that's where the Bible puts Sodom and Gomorrah and and its destruction. Now, I'm I'm not going to belabor that point, but all the great historical scholars, Albright, today Kenneth Kitchen, Uh, who wrote a masterful book that you should own uh, on the reliability of the Old Testament, Uh, they all put Abram in the Middle Bronze Age. This is the proper place for him. Genesis 10 mentions Sodom and Gomorrah and Adma and Zeboim, the cities of the plain. And Genesis 10 is the chapter in the Bible that gives us the table of nations, but it also gives us the foundation of urban development. This is the time when great walled cities were being built throughout the Middle East, in what we call the Fertile Crescent in Egypt and the Levant, Canaan, Mesopotamia. And so 
Genesis 10 gives us a picture of this period of history where the very first cities are being built. It mentions Babylon, Nineveh, Akkad, other great cities of Mesopotamia, but it also mentions Sodom, Gomorrah, Adma, and Zeboim, the cities of the plain. And so, not only do we have to have a site that dates to the time of Abraham and Lot, but we have to have a city that goes back much further than that in time, back to the earliest development of cities or fortified cities, and that is the early Bronze Age. So let's go back and look at that. There's the early Bronze Age. There's the middle Bronze Age. Abraham and Lot belong to the middle Bronze Age. Genesis 10, that belongs to the early Bronze Age, to the time of the earliest building of the earliest cities. Now, let's look at some stuff. We're in the right place. Tal Hamam, our site in Jordan, is at the right time frame. But tonight I want to focus on the discoveries. What are we finding? What is there? And I will tell you that this season, particularly the end of the season, say the last part of of February, was the most exciting couple of weeks that we've seen in seven years of excavation. Things started happening so fast and things were coming out in such a dramatic way that it was absolutely unbelievable and I'm so excited to be able to share some of this with you tonight. Now, we're just going to go through certain passages in the book of Genesis and see what the Bible has to say specifically about the city of Sodom. What did it look like? What's it like? There are some very good indicators about this about this city. In the 19th chapter of Genesis, first verse, we see that Lot was sitting in the gateway of Sodom. It is a city. It is a large city. Now, um, the city of Sodom. This is Dr. Lane Rittmeyer's uh, recent reconstruction drawing of the city of Sodom during the Middle Bronze Age. And you can see that there is an upper city to the right, to the left, a larger encircling lower city. And there are also many more little villages around it that we haven't included in this drawing yet. Now, just to look at it, here's the north end of the Dead Sea. Everybody's familiar with Jericho. There's Jericho across the river. Also, we have a site just to the north of us that is probably the seat of another what we call city-state, And then, of course, the area of Talel Hamam, Sodom, is in this region. Now, Sodom probably controlled the entire Kikar, both sides of the river. It was that big and that powerful. And 
During the time of Abram, of course, Jericho is not even mentioned in the Bible, not until the book of Joshua. Even though we know it existed, it was sort of just a satellite because, frankly, Tal el-Hammam is about 10, 12 times larger than Jericho. So Jericho is kind of a peanut out there uh, on the Kikar and really doesn't even uh, come into play in the Abraham story. But this is where we're located. Now, done a little, a little bit of uh, doctoring of this photo to show you what we know. Now, this, this little reconstruction of the, of the southern city wall of the lower city of Sodom is actually 100% of what we're looking at here is confirmed in the, in the archaeological excavations the, this is based on the foundations. So what we're seeing here in the drawing is a, a little simple reconstruction based on the, found, the stone foundations that are exposed through excavation or through tracing uh, along the surface. And you can see that there are a number of defensive towers. And you can see toward the right-hand side the gateway of Sodom, which, by the way, we had no idea was there until February 15th. Okay? I just want you to get a sense of how recent this is. I'm still shaking the dust out of my clothes from this. Now, uh, we're going to look at that gate in gory detail tonight, but I just want you to get a sense of it. By the way... From the right-hand side, from the right-hand gate tower to the far tower on the left-hand side of the photograph is about 600 meters. It's really large. say, well, you know, it's not as big as my neighborhood. It's not as big by modern standards, but by ancient standards, this city is in the top 1% of size for all cities in Israel and Jordan during during ancient times. So we're looking at a city that is either the largest Bronze Age city in the southern Levant, Israel, Jordan, or... It's possibly the second largest city. We kind of have a little battle going with Hatzor, uh, which one was bigger in which periods, but they were both very large on the upper end of the scale. Here's Lane Rittmeyer's drawing again. Now you can see that there are two, uh, actually three, excellent water sources very close to the site. On the north... And on the south, it's surrounded by... They are not perennial rivers today because they're dammed up. But in antiquity, they were perennially flowing streams. They ran all year round, probably even in the dry season, in the the summer and, and fall. And they had lots of water. Not only that, just a few kilometers to the west lies the great Jordan River. Plus, there are about seven or eight springs on the site that constantly gush water. Some of them fresh, cool water. Some of them hot, irony, sulfury water. So they could, you know, get a good bath if they needed it. Now, 
Genesis 19, 1 and 2. Remember we said there was a gateway. Now, first, before I get to the gateway, now this is tied to the gateway. But it mentions a square. Remember, Lot sat in the gateway of Sodom, in the city of Sodom. But then there was a city square. When the, when the messengers of Yahweh, the angels, came, they, stay, they insisted that they stay in the square area. Well, that means there's a plaza. Now, in the ancient world, there are gates, and then there is usually a plaza on the inside of the gate and a plaza on the outside of the gate. So there's a city square on the outside, and there's a city square on the inside of the gate. This is where commercial business is conducted. This is where Lot sat. By the way, why was Lot sitting in the gate? He was sitting in the gate probably as a judge. Now remember, he was a nomad. He and Abraham lived in tents. They ran flocks and herds. What's he doing buying a house and living in Sodom? Well, some of these, some of these ancient, what we might call, Abiru or Hebrew warlords, uh, as they were, because they had standing armies, they would often be wealthy enough, as Lot certainly was, uh, to purchase land inside a, a major city with which they were associated at certain times of the year when they were there with their flocks and herds. And so Lot obviously bought some real estate, and and maybe because he was a he was a, a nomad himself, he was sort of placed on the city council to adjudicate problems with local Bedouin, with local nomadic and semi-nomadic people. So maybe that's why Lot's sitting in the gate. They probably said to him, Lot, you understand these people, you deal with them for us. And uh, maybe he got a discount on his house. Who knows, for performing that service. But there was a plaza in Sodom. Well, guess what? As a result of the last two seasons' excavations, we have unearthed the main inner and outer plazas at Sodom, and and here they are. Now, you can actually see both of them here. Um, You can see the main city wall running diagonally right through the middle of the picture. Uh, If you will look at some of the folks standing in the photo, you will see the size of the walls and the thickness of the walls. You will see some of the mud bricks. You will also see a squarish tower right out there to the left. And if I get my little cursor to wake up, do you see it right here? See this tower? Here's the old EB city wall. Here's the middle bronze city wall from the time of Abraham. And what's interesting about that is that there is a plaza on the outside. Here's the plaza area. Here's some bricks from the plaza area. And right inside is a retaining wall. If you look at this wall right here, there's a retaining wall that divides the public area or the residential area to the right. And against the city wall, you can see that there is a place right here. See how nice and flat that is? That's a walking surface. That's part of the plaza. So here we are. In the archaeology, in the dirt, uncovering it from the Middle Bronze Age, from the time of Abraham, inside the gate, and not only that, there's a gate plaza. 
So here we're looking at a piece of architecture, an architectural feature actually mentioned in the Bible. Now, Genesis 19.1, Lot sat in the gateway. This is not Lot. This is Abdurrahman. He has grown up on the excavation of Tal el-Hammam. He was about maybe eight, nine years old, ten when he started. Now he's uh, quite the strapping young man. He's also in charge of our tools on the site. And you can see how he has them very, all the tarias and picks, uh, the large tools, nice and neatly arranged for everybody to come in, for, for the local Jordanian workers to come and pick up and use for the day. But what's interesting about this is he is just about sitting in the gateway of Sodom. It's right under, uh, under that stool. And we actually haven't excavated it yet in this picture. Of course, before you excavate, you got to eat. This is, this is Magluba. Now, most of it's gone. It was much prettier than this. Um, Mike, our photographer, couldn't even get a good photograph of it this season before. You know, the team just devoured it. And, um, and then uh, this is, this is uh, my very, very good friend who owns the mosque where we store our tools. This is Abu Ahmed. Abu Ahmed uh, is our site guard. He takes care of things. In fact, one day I got a little call from Abu Ahmed. And I, his English is almost non-existent. And, he's, and, and my Arabic is worse. And so he's, we're talking on the phone, and he says something about Chinese tourists, Chinese tourists. I said, what about Chinese tourists? So I couldn't understand what he was saying. So I said, I'll call you back. So I, I called my, uh, my, my, my associate Hussein uh, Al-Jara from the excavation, and I said, please call. Uh, uh, Abu Ahmed is really upset. Please call him. And then call me back and let me know what in the world is going on. So he calls and minute Hussein calls me back. He said, Abu Ahmed has a whole busload of Chinese tourists cornered and he's throwing rocks at them. <laughs> and that's not the first time. <laughs> that but he's very, very touchy about letting anybody up on the site. He just, he, he just, he kind of overdoes it a bit. <laughs> but Abu Ahmed, he, he's a case. By the way, the first time I met, first time I saw him, the very first time I walked up, the very first day of the excavation in 2005, I was walking up and Abu Ahmed was over here working on his, gar- on his garden. He runs sheep and banana fields and all kinds of stuff. Quite wealthy by standards of the area. And he's working over there in his garden, and I'm walking up, and he looks up at me and he says, If you find the gold and you don't give it to me, I will shoot you. (laughs) And you have to take that just a itty bitty bit seriously in that part of the Jordan Valley, because we do call it the Wild West, and everybody is armed to the teeth. And um, even though... Guns are illegal in Jordan, except for shotguns for shooting doves. But 
everybody's lo- is loaded down there. And um, so they're all packing. And in fact, I, I, have, to, I have to tell this little story. Uh, this is just, just, just from just a few weeks ago. Uh, in fact, it may have been this day when, when we're sitting there eating. Abu Ahmed was talking to me, and he was, he was so happy uh, that day. And so he was just, just talking about everything. And there was a big black Hummer sitting right by the mosque. And he says, that, that car belongs to my daughter. I said, oh, nice. By the way, in, in that culture, if some, and this happened to me. In fact, it happened with Abu Ahmed. One day, last winter, two, two, three winters ago, he came out on a really cold day wearing a really nice, big overcoat all the way to the ground, right? Nice stripes on the sleeves. And I said, whoa, Abu Ahmed, looking good. I like that jacket. Guess who owns it now? (laughs) Yeah, I've got it. So you have to be really careful because that's very much that the Bedouin culture. You say you like it, you get it. So on purpose this day, I said, whoa. Yeah. I really like that car. Didn't work. Rats. But anyway, he told me. Now, the, the dominant clan in that part of the valley doesn't like government a lot. They don't like buying things like License plates for their cars or driver's licenses or all like paperwork. So they don't. They don't a lot of them don't carry driver's license. They don't have, they don't, have, don't have plates on their vehicles. So he was telling me, oh, my daughter. And she was riding up in her Hummer, black, big black Hummer. She was riding up to Amman. She got stopped right out there on the, on the highway by a policeman. By the way, two of his sons are policemen. And so she got stopped. And the policeman, he said, he asked her for her driver's license. And she had a nine millimeter Glock laying on the seat, on the driver's seat, on the passenger seat. She picked it up, just palmed it like this, and showed it to him. This is my license. Thank you, ma'am. Go right on your way. That's the way it works. And the police know it in that part of the world. So, but, uh, so we have a very interesting time, believe me. Oh, I was going to say, um, we could just tell stories. We've got time. <laughs> so the first time I see Abu Ahmed, he says, if you don't give me some of the, if you find the gold, I will shoot you. Now, what's interesting about that is that everybody in the area Everybody thinks we're digging for gold. Everybody. There's, a, there's an Arabic tradition that when the Ottoman Turks left the area, when the British came in, back before uh, World War II, uh, the, the end of the British mandate, 
when, when all that came down, it was said that the, that the Ottomans buried their gold hordes all over Jordan. And so all the locals in Jordan are completely convinced that that's what, what archaeology is all about. We're all there looking for gold. We must have maps. We must have secret information. We got, everybody thinks that. I will go to my, uh, my, my little bank. I have an account there for the, for the dig at the, uh, at the uh, Housing Bank of Trade and Finance right there in Shuna near our excavation. And I first time I walked in and sat down with the bank manager, and as soon as, I, soon as uh, Hussein mentioned, I'm an archaeologist, he turns to me and he says, Have you found the gold? A couple of years ago, we went up and talked to the, uh, to, the, to the military commanders who have their base right up behind our site. And we went to two commanders that day in two different parts of the base. And each time, oh, by the way, have you found the gold? So it's just a universal story, and we can't get away from it. But no, we're not digging for gold. The real gold is the history that we excavate. Now, look at these yellowy mud bricks. By the way, these mud bricks are the top of what's left of the old early Bronze Age, shall we say the old Genesis chapter 10 city wall. Okay. It was basically torn down to this level and built over by a much larger fortification, as we'll see. But this is the beginning of the excavation of this particular area. Now, what we found against that wall, what I'm pointing to is a very clear line of demarcation between those yellowish mud bricks that I'm, I'm kneeling on in this photograph and the brownish mud bricks in front of me. And you can see the seam between those two laid mud, mud brick types. Okay? What is in front of me is a Middle Bronze Age addition using the foundation or the top of the old early Bronze Age city wall. I mean, why waste it? It's there. You use it. And so that's what that is. But I want you to notice the width of that wall. It's 3.10 meters, 10 feet thick. There's the tower. Do you see its foundation on the outer lower side has been extended? The stone foundation actually is fatter. Why? Because that's the heavy downside, downslope side. But you can see that tower. Now, it, you really can't tell the size of it until you actually jump in the picture. You see the chamber, and that chamber in the center there is surrounded by 10-foot thick walls. That tower is 37 feet by 46 feet on a side. It stood probably as much as 45 feet high. It is a huge, huge tower. It is, we didn't know it at the time, but by the time we got to the end of the season, we knew this is the left monumental gate tower of the main city gate at Sodom. This is it. You're looking at it. Now, as you look down upon it, you can see the folks working on the same tower. You can see clearly the city wall foundation of the Middle Bronze Age. And you can see the scope and the scale of what's happening here. 
Here's another look at it. Now, what's interesting is the folks working on the right-hand side of the picture are actually in the... They don't know it yet. When this photo was taken, they, they didn't know. They hoped, but they didn't know they were actually excavating the passageway of the main city gate. We have been looking for that thing for seven seasons. The first day I visited Tal El Hammam a little over ten years ago, and we got there, remember, based on following the Bible to the location. When I walked up on that site, the first thing that went on my wish list, the number one thing on my archaeological wish list was, i got to have the gateway of Sodom. I want to find the gate that Lot sat in. That's what I want. Now, there's a lot of things on that list. But that was number one. And that thing had been eluding us for seven seasons. We couldn't find it. We had big sections cut out by bulldozers by the military some 20, 30 years ago, 40 years ago. We thought maybe it was in those places because it just eluded us. We couldn't find it. What's interesting is that it turns out to be located exactly where we had started our first trench on the lower tail, where we've been working for four seasons. We've been wheelbarrowing over it, walking over it, eating our lunches on it. And it was there all along. So there it is. Now, uh, Dr. Lane Rittmeyer was certainly a very important part of this. He was called in because he is the world's leading expert on ancient architecture, ancient bronze and Iron Age architecture. He has done the architectural reconstruction drawings for over 70 major excavations in Israel alone. He is the expert. And so when Lane talks, I listen. We just listen. When Lane gets going, it's like a freight train. In four or five days, he will have it all figured out and he will have drawings begun. Here he is bringing our team over and he is now lecturing. He's been there three days. In three days, he has said, now, if you'll measure from there to there, you will find the other side of the wall. Dig? Oh, there it is. We found it. He says, okay, if you'll measure over here, you should find the other tower. Oh, measure, found it. And he just goes, eh, symmetry. It's all about symmetry. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that. So here's Lane, after three days, lecturing some members of our team on what this all does, how it works, what it looks like. It's fantastic. I stood back. I'm standing here listening to the world's leading authority on ancient architecture describe our new gate, the gate I've been looking for since the beginning. And all of a sudden I realize what's happening. And I mean just tears just squirted out of my eyes on the inside of my sunglasses. I couldn't help it. It was just, whoa. It was one of those moments that, here it is. Monumental city gate. Check. If Rittmeyer says it, I check it. I take it to the bank. Here we are conferring. That's uh, Jordan's top archaeologist right there on the right. 
When Lane works, it comes in a flurry. Here's Lane and I. Love this picture. Lane and I standing in the gateway of Sodom. By the way, before we ever excavated this gate, uh, Carol uh, Cobes, the supervisor over the area, asked Lane, Lane, how wi- if we find the main city gate, how wide should it be? He doesn't even hesitate. Two meters. You know what that gate width is? Two meters. Okay. Now, this is the this is the end of our little our little gate time. I hope you can can you see I'm standing on the left in the tower. Do you see me? And Lane is standing in the gate, in the main city gate. Now I'm gonna punch a button, and I'm gonna give you a shadow version of what the gate complex looked like. And we're still going to be standing there. This will just give you a sense of the scope of it. That's what the gate complex looks like. Now, this is, this is my little doodling. Lane will do the official one at some point in time. But I just wanted to do this to give you a sense. You see Lane standing right in the main entryway which would have been an arched mud brick gateway. So this is the size of it based on the foot. This is precisely the size. By the way, I drew this right on the stones from the photograph. So this is exactly the proper scale. So that's what it looks like. Folks, I'm so excited to say, welcome to the gateway of Sodom. There it is. There it is. Well, it says Lot lived in a house. We're going to do this real quickly, but I'm going to take you through the house. Now, I'm not saying that this is Lot's house. But there are some things about Lot's house that are very specific, and here they are. They entered Lot's house. He prepared a meal. They've got a kitchen. Men from every part of the city surrounded the house. That means it's got to be surrounded by alleyways. It's freestanding, right? And then Lot closed the door. Remember, they were trying to get in the house. And Lot, they, clo- they pulled Lot in. They closed the door. It's got doors. It's got rooms. It's got a courtyard for cooking. They didn't cook inside. They had outside cooking. Well, this may not be the house of Sodom. Probably isn't. But it looks like it. Here it is. Right here. There. That's the outside wall. There's some rooms. There is the house. Now, we haven't excavated all of it yet, but it has so far an alleyway or a street going all around it. It seems to be a freestanding complex. Now, look at this. Here's the kitchen. Well, this doesn't look much like a kitchen to me. Well, you've got a stone hearth over here on the right, or a stone cutting slab over here on the right. You've got several little installations Here's uh, the excavator, my assistant director, Gary Byers, supervising this area. And here you see the cutting stone. Here you see one of the hearths in the middle of the room. Here you see one of the grinding stones in the kitchen. Of course, there are other grinding stones around. A little bit of the excavation. Here's a large pot sitting in the kitchen. Here's one of the small bowls. We had many, many vessels in the kitchen. And... My favorite little kitchen implement. 
This is the handy-dandy rouletting wheel. You can rule, uh, roulette uh, beautiful designs right across your flatbreads, right across your tortillas, and uh, there you go. Now, let's get to the nitty-gritty. We'll close with this. The destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Here it is. Yahweh rained down a conflagration and lightning, brimstone, no. Gopreet means in this context lightning on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out of the heavens. He overthrew the cities, the entire Kikar, including all those living in the cities and also all the vegetation in the land. What does it look like? Bones scatter, human bones everywhere, bodies literally blown apart, skeletons ripped and torn, joints hyperflexed. This guy's charred off at mid-femur. Uh, absolutely stunning stuff. And, and again, bones scatter everywhere. What do you find in the destruction of Sodom? Oh, they played games. Here's a gaming board, a wheel from a wagon, a bead, a piriform juglet, jewelry, and implements of bronze, all found in the destruction. Of course, seals come from our tombs in the area. We did probes. Did you see the color of that dirt? The entire outer plaza area where we did these probes is completely covered, huge area, completely covered with a half meter, a cubit, 20 inches of dark ash from the destruction of the city. And that ash is laying right on the plaza. Here I am just playing in the ash, just giving you an idea about the piles of ash, the destruction of Sodom. I close with this. Ash of Sodom. Here it is. (laughs) Can't open it because it's got to be analyzed. But uh, you're welcome to see it afterwards. Let's go to God in prayer. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We thank you for the joy of confirming the reality of your scriptures. That what you tell us is true. The Old Testament, the New Testament that ultimately and finally shines light on the identification of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who gave His life on the cross for the sins of the world and rose from the dead, that we might have life. In His name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.